Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists. So, this week we've gone big and we've gone international. We'll be talking all about skin and the environment. So, obviously, with this absolutely enormous topic, we've got a huge amount of ground to cover. So, it's probably best that we just get introduced to our guests straight away. Harriet, I'll let you do the honours. Hi, everyone. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about dermatology and the environment. And we have with us today Dr. Misha Rosenbach, Associate Professor of Dermatology and Internal Medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Rachel Abbott, a consultant dermatologist with an interest in environmental issues around dermatology. Uh, Welcome both. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Great. I guess we'll get stuck straight in. Um, If Matt, you want to take it away with the questions. Fantastic. Misha, I'll come to you first, if you don't mind. Perhaps you could sort of outline in broad brushstrokes the link between the environment and the skin and why it's an issue that we should all care about. Yeah, so that's a great question. And honestly, I I mean, I could probably go on with a really long answer. So I do want to make sure that we keep this as as a dialogue. But um, I I would say it sort of depends on on a couple of different categories. So, you know, the skin is basically our largest external organ, it wraps up our whole body. And so the skin sits at the skin environment interface. And so you can have impacts from the environment on the skin in terms of skin diseases that are influenced by things in the environment. You can also have issues or impacts on the environment from things we put on our skin. Um, So like creams, topicals, cosmetics, sunscreens. Um, And then you can also think about the skin as as an organ um, that that impacts the rest of the body. So, um, you know, the skin sort of helps with thermoregulation or temperature regulation through sweating. And so, you know, we don't necessarily think about heat-related illness and heat stroke as like a dermatologic disease. But as temperatures go up, um, you know, people need to be able to um, acclimate or accommodate to that with maintaining their 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 body temperature, and in, in some areas we're seeing real issues with heat related illness. Um, there have been some some massive heat waves um, in, in in Europe, um, but uh, also of course in areas like um, sub-Saharan Af- Africa, Pakistan, India, um, where people are not equipped to live in certain temperatures. And, you know, I don't know if you count that as a dermatological disease, but it certainly is a a skin environment interface. But um, most of our work um, is focused on sort of dermatological diseases that are um, changing as we're witnessing sort of rapid um, climate change and some of the impacts uh, across the globe from extreme weather, migrations of vector patterns and illnesses and things like that. You kind of touched on this, but does climate change impact the occurrence of certain dermatological conditions? Um, And is this, I mean, you said that it's happening in in certain countries more so than others. Why is this? I assume it's because it's the hotter places in in the world. Um, Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, what we're seeing with man-made climate change is very rapid changes in the environment. So, you know, the earth has been here for billions of years, but we've had a fairly stable amount of CO2 and greenhouse gases in the environment over all of human civilization up until the Industrial Revolution, where the rapidity of rate of rise of CO2, particulate matter, and other greenhouse gases means that we're forcing changes across the globe very rapidly, sort of more than biological or natural systems can can acclimate to or evolve in response to. And that's when people talk about tipping points and ice sheets and ocean rise and sort of heat rising and, and changing pH and, and, and acidity of the ocean, th- th- those are all happening very rapidly. And there's also globalization where, you know, um, there's much more interconnectivity across the globe where we see pe- people and populations from different areas um, kind of intermingling in different ways than maybe thousands of years ago would have happened, obviously. And so, um, you know, all, all of that means that uh, we're seeing 
different things in different areas, but what happens in different areas doesn't necessarily only impact those areas. And so um, for listeners, I don't have an amazingly brilliant sounding accent like you. So I, I'm, I'm here in North America in, in Philadelphia. Um, and so Philadelphia is sort of the, the Lyme capital of, of the world where we have the most cases of Lyme disease here in the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, if you look at like a CDC map of Lyme disease, for instance, so Lyme is, is a disease that's carried by an, uh, a tick called the Ixodes tick. Um, that normally lives on deer, um, and it, it, it doesn't do very well in, in cold. And so um, usually we see tick bite season in like spring and summer into maybe early fall. But as we have more warm temperatures over the summer and an expansion of the warm seasons, so spring happens earlier, summer happens earlier, fall is warm later, and more mild winters, we're seeing ticks biting earlier in the year and later in the year. So we've expanded sort of the time range of when people can get exposed to these ticks and get Lyme. Um, but also as the world is warming, we're seeing an expansion of kind of warm temperatures marching up onto more and more northern latitudes. And so we normally see ticks in kind of this mid-Atlantic and, and New England region. But now there's Lyme disease happening in, in Maine, which is uh, sort of like one of the northernmost states, and in, in parts of Canada, where 10 or 15 years ago, dermatologists and physicians there were never used to diagnosing Lyme. And so what that means now is that people who didn't expect to see Lyme for their whole career are having patients present with Lyme, but maybe um, having delayed diagnoses or missing those diagnoses. And that's sort of a really digestible nugget example of things, but um, there are different conditions um, in, in different areas of, of the globe and, and, and different manifestations in, in different regions. And, and it really, I, I mean, we could go on and on where you could talk about crop failures and, and sort of uh, rural to urban migration and civil unrest leading to migration of sort of displaced populations and malnutrition and skin issues and uh, obviously other issues from, from all of those things. And so um, it, it, this is one of those things where when people talk about climate change as an existential threat, they, they don't mean like a, sort of like a Kafka novel, novel where you're thinking about existentialism. They mean um, it really changes sort of the existence. Um, and there's been a phrase called um, climate change is a threat multiplier where it makes everything that there is that's bad worse and makes new things that weren't bad into problems. And um, I, I think we could rattle off uh, probably 20 derm diseases uh, or skin issues alone. Yes, I mean, it, this is it. It, it, um, it impacts, because I suppose traditionally we always thought about global warming, but that's really changed now. We're thinking around that it's more global change, um, climate change. So um, we're seeing these extreme weather patterns. So it's uh, it's not that uh, where I live in Wales is suddenly going to become like the south of France, which would potentially be quite an attractive proposition. Um, but we're certainly seeing more flooding episodes um, over recent years than we have in the past. Um, and it's the impact um, on every um, type of skin disease. So inflammatory skin disease, infectious skin disease, and then in, with uh, skin cancer as well, which is more my field. Um, you know, it has the potential to impact o on any skin disease, really, the, this, uh, this change and this disruption. Anything that d disrupts um, civilization is going to have an impact on health. And unfortunately, in high-income parts of the globe, um, where we tend to have a higher carbon footprint uh, per person, um, it's uh, perhaps our behavior in uh, these these parts of the globe over the since the change of the industrial age that have, have caused a lot of um, this these greenhouse gas emissions. But unfortunately, uh, they're disproportionately affecting lower income parts of the world that um, that are still on this sort of industrialization journey. And this is why it's such a, a huge geopolitical problem <laughs> um, should 
um, those of us that have benefited uh, from um, industrialization be now um, basically paying um, those countries that are wanting to go down that path to not go that, down that path for the health of the planet. There is some good news, which, which um, Prof. Anthony Young discussed at the RSM, and I, I was so pleased because I like good news, um, because we know that um, the global community did come together to introduce legislation to tackle depletion in ozone, which we think was potentially raising the UV index um, in certain parts of the globe, leading to potentially higher skin cancer rates. And, and this has worked. So this is fantastic. And so we have done this before as a global community. Um, and so there, there is hope that we can do this again. But um, obviously, there's um, been huge disruption because of the COVID-19 pandemic over the last year. And so focus is somewhat shifted. Um, but there, there is a movement. And I think um, it's sort of come to healthcare a little bit late. I think Misha was on the ball faster than some of us. But I think what we're realising is, um, is that we're contributing to the situation in healthcare. Healthcare has been excluded from most um, regulation around carbon emissions um, in most countries in the past. Um, but I think now as um, healthcare organisations are realising that um, we don't have the option of being excluded, we're part of the problem and uh, we really need to get our own house in order. And so, uh, we're, you know, a lot of the things we were doing at home, I suppose this is where my interest came from, if you like. I um, was trying to lower my carbon emissions in my personal life and then I was coming into work and operating on patients with skin cancer with single-use packs single-use instruments and everything was going um, to the incinerator afterwards and considering we cut out about a quarter of a million skin cancers in the UK annually that is an awful lot of waste going um, into the incinerator and contributing to greenhouse gas emissions so I suppose that's really where my interest and passion came for trying to um, bring what I was doing at home into my work life and um, I think during the pandemic we've all been using a lot more PPE and um, become far more aware of um, what we're generating in our in our work life. So for me, it was really a sort of a opportunity to um, introduce some of the measures I'd, I'd brought in my personal life into my work life as well, where there seemed to be this huge imbalance. It's very easy to sort of dismiss a lot of um, climate as, okay, this is overwhelming, whatever, or I don't know what to do, or future technology will solve it. And so just one thing is that we can solve it now. So the cheapest new energy is, is solar and wind, and there are many sources like, you know, the ocean waves, gravity, geothermal, um, you know, which have will not contribute to greenhouse gases. And so it is cheaper to build new solar power now than it is to run existing coal plants. And so, um, and the UK is a great model where there are maps of how much of the UK's energy comes from coal. And they've gone hundreds of days without any coal energy. And actually, you've mentioned, um, you know, the, the UK um, healthcare. So the NHS, I think, has committed to carbon neutrality, um, which is certainly uh, far more advanced than the, the US healthcare system, where um, if you look at US healthcare system emissions as a sector, it would be one of the top 10 emitting nations in, in the world. And so there's certainly a lot of room to move on that. But um, you also touched a little bit on like personal responsibility. And this is something that I think it's really important that you guys are doing a podcast on this, because it's very easy for people to say, well, I'm 
going to eat vegetarian or, or vegan, so there's you know less land use for, for beef, or, or I'm going to get, I don't know, a hybrid or electric vehicle or whatever, or you know recycle my bags. Um, but we also know that um, the vast majority of emissions and plastic waste come from a very small number of, of companies. And you know no one should feel like their individual choices don't matter, but no one should also feel like it's their individual fault that this is a crisis. This is something that will require sort of global co- cooperation, um, industries, you know, something like the NHS making a move matters, obviously, like infinitely more than, you know, individual choices. But I think it all feeds in together. And, you know, you you touched on sort of flying and and how the COVID pandemic has been in some ways a setback. But the COVID pandemic also, I think, has opened up people's eyes to some of the alternative models and ways to do things where I I think, you know, when we have our next American Academy of Dermatology meeting, and we're putting together our speaker session, I I don't know if you would normally be traveling across the Atlantic to, to come, but we would certainly like easily now be able to have you as like, uh, you know, virtual speaker or, uh, you know, recorded lecture, which I think um, little to nothing is lost from an audience member, but it really broadens our global reach and can reduce our carbon footprint in, in real meaningful ways. Yeah, I think those those are all really fantastic points. And it's, re- it's really interesting, you know, hearing about the differences between America and the UK in terms of it's very different healthcare systems. And, and obviously, the benefit of not being so fragmented in the UK is that you can make these more sweeping changes as a sort of whole organization from the nhs it's really fascinating all, all of it and i agree i think there's i mean we'll I, I do want to touch on later on perhaps a little bit on the skincare industry because you know it's something obviously that a lot of our listeners will interact with on a daily basis uh, they'll all be consumers in in some form or another and there is a lot of pressure i suppose not pressure is perhaps the wrong word but i suppose i feel that I want to be responsible as an individual and buy responsibly and think about the impact that my decisions have on the planet. But I think you're right. It does it does need to sort of be these systemic changes and, and large actors who can have more influence really can have such a huge impact. One of the, the big questions we have at the moment is around pollution and the impact that has on our skin. I do see a lot, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate position to have access to, to various of the, the BAD's journals and I do see a lot of uh, material published on this at the moment and the impact that it can have on your skin can we maybe talk about Rachel you know what what impact does pollution have on our skin and what can we do about this so when we talk about pollution we're sort of mainly talking about um about greenhouse gases and particulate matter heavy metals and um so there are two ways that these can can affect the skin either directly so when in direct contact with the skin so I suppose traditionally thinking about uh, jobs like chimney sweeps where you had direct contact with uh, with coal um, and with with the skin and then entry through the skin I think when people think about pollution nowadays it's more airborne pollution from from vehicles particularly if you're living in a built-up area and so this would be indirect so it's inhaled and into the lungs and then absorbed into the bloodstream and that's how it reaches the skin in an indirect fashion and we know that um, these are the two routes that can affect the skin and uh, there have been studies um, comparing um, the effects of um, living in an area of high pollution compared to an area of low pollution which have demonstrated that um, both inf- inflammatory skin disease particularly worsened. I mean, the, the traditional one we think of as atopic dermatitis, which uh, has been demonstrated to be worse in, in these sort of situations. But it's, it's most commonly from inhaling uh, the pollution rather than from direct contact with the skin. 
So, um, but the, the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet, which probably should, is, is sort of the environmental justice aspects of, of climate change. And so, like, I think Rachel's comment about um, different people in different areas um, uh, may be exposed to more pollution. Um, I, I don't know about sort of UK population data, but in the US, there's certainly city-based data where, um, you know, some urban areas have more tree cover and get less hot, but some urban areas have less tree cover and are more prone to kind of heat uh, ur urban heat systems that, that, that can be overwhelming. Um, similarly, more pollution in some of those areas, so closer to coal factories. And either surprisingly or not surprisingly, it turns out that there's a lot of racial um, sort of um, um, history behind which groups live in which areas. And that has impacts on health of a community and population health, but also on our, our understanding of disease. So if you think about, well, we're trying to understand atopic dermatitis, and you might look at a family and do genetic studies or a group, but sometimes that whole cohort of people might be forced into living in a different area where there are different environmental risks and, and maybe it's you know genetic environmental interfaces and you've highlighted atopic derm that's of course a good example um, wildfire smoke actually is another um, big environmental pollution issue that has particulate matter and you know in the US we've seen a dramatic expansion of wildfire um, season and severity of wildfires I, you probably hear about California wildfires which might seem like they're far away but actually if you, if you look at satellite maps of the plume of smoke from California wildfires it actually extends over above Greenland, where then the soot lands on the snow and turns it from white reflective snow into black absorbent color that then contributes to warming of kind of the glaciers and accelerated melting, then that same smoke plume travels. Oh, I'm going to mess up my geography, but I think Greenland's closer to the US than the UK. So um, eventually it gets to, to, to you guys. And so um, really, we are like all in a global community. And a, a lot of these issues have sort of these myriad of cascading consequences that we don't, you know, at a glance necessarily totally um, take into consideration. This is neither here nor there, but you mentioned flooding. Um, so, so right now there's recently like a, a cyclone, you know, in India that uh, I think is either has or just had impacted Mumbai at the time of like our recording. And you, you hear about evacuations, but also we know that right now India is going through like a very severe struggle with COVID cases. And you, again, this is one of these climate change threat multiplier issues of it's very hard to evacuate into a different place when there's so much COVID going on. Um, and people have talked a lot about COVID as sort of a microcosm for some of the struggles with climate change, where if you look across the world, different countries have um, reacted differently to the pandemic, and different countries have listened more closely to expertise and scientific consensus. Um, and as a result, different populations have had seen different outcomes. And uh, many climate scientists are, are pointing to some of the misinformation propagation during the pandemic as sort of emblematic of what climate science has struggled with for many years, where there's sort of a funded disinformation vested interests group that fights back against the scientific consensus and best practices around kind of climate change, where, where things stand, what our understanding is, and what we have to do to avoid the worst effects of things. Things. And, and so um, I think for listeners, it, it's, it's very climate change feels abstract and far away, but we're seeing the impacts of, of climate change on human health right now. Um, certainly this right now, but also the next generation, generation after that. But the change, the decisions we make now have impacts on the climate that people will be living in for thousands to tens of thousands of years. It, it's very hard to change things on a global scale, and we're doing it very quickly, rapidly in the wrong direction. And the, the lessons of exponential spread from COVID would be good for people to keep in mind from the exponential impacts that we're, we're facing with climate change. And the challenges of misinformation during the pandemic, I think, are good for people to remember in terms of paying attention to people who are trusted voices who really know what they're talking about um, in terms of climate change. Exactly.
And I would say, yeah, I mean, you talk about the US and I think, you know, the US is good in a way because it's such a, it's got so many different environments and ecosystems due to its size. And, you know, you can talk about problems in the US, which are true, you know, we talk about wildfires. I mean, Australia was in in a very similar boat. You know, we were talking about flooding earlier. There's places like uh, Bangladesh that have to deal with regular issues with flooding. You know, these are these are common phenomena that happen. I'm, I'm sure there's lessons to be learned from each of these stories that are actually common to many parts of the world. You know, I know that one thing similar to the tick story that you mentioned earlier, we're, we're also seeing similar things happen in other parts of the world with jellyfish and, you know, increased jellyfish stings at different times of the year from when, when you would normally see them because of climate change. So, you know, I think there's sort of commonalities that you can draw. And when talking about pollution, I mean, every country has its big urban areas and it's sometimes, you know, impoverished areas versus wealthy areas within the same urban environment. So I think there's these these common threads that hold true for different areas. So it's really, really interesting. And it's good. It's nice that we can sort of take a bit more of a global perspective. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's always more complicated than you initially think. It's just trying to get that nuanced message across in the right style and that's acceptable to people um, is challenging. Uh, something I think um, in science, we're, we're learning to be better communicators. Yeah, so I, I'm hopeful that um, far, far more people are aware now of um, randomised controlled trials because of um, some of the COVID trials and um, more of the general public have you know been enrolled in trials in the last year, probably than ever before. I mean, it is quite phenomenal. And, um, and so hopefully people now have more understanding of the nuance of um, of research and um, of the challenges of trying to generate evidence. Um, I, I am hopeful. We're, we're very lucky, actually, just to mention that in the UK, um, not only do we have, as you say, the, the NHS have committed to carbon neutrality. However, um, we've also got the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare uh, based in Oxford. And um, I think they've been a fantastic focal point for those clinicians who are interested in environmental sustainability to to try and um, generate networks so um for in wales for example we're about to launch the the wales green health network which is really exciting and i know the british association of dermatology have got a working party on environmental sustainability so um so we're, we're really fortunate in many ways in the uk um i, I don't if you've got anything similar in, in the us misha um, yeah, there are a couple of organizations in the in the U.S. There's something called the Medical Society Consortium, which uh, is, is focused on sort of climate and health. Um, they actually uh, have membership from if you count up all the organizations that have delegates or, or committees, it's most organizations of physicians in the U.S. But um, there are also some promising signs where both the um, AMA, which is the American Medical Association, and the ACP, which is the American College of Physicians, probably the two largest um, sort of physician organizations in the U.S., both have very strong statements around climate change and the importance of um, integrating it into education and patient care and um, that clinicians should be involved in um, sustainability and healthcare and mitigation efforts and should engage engage patients and the, the public as sort of a trusted voice on um, explaining the health impacts of climate change um, for, for patients and for populations. So again, I think um, individual choice is really important, um, but no one should um, discount the fact that individual choice is not going to solve this on its own. But if there's no individual pressure, no individual choice, there's unlikely to be industry or government response. And so I think uh, there are published lists of companies that are more sustainable in their practices. And there are companies that pay attention to, you know, everything from where their product starts and comes from to what's in their product to what happens um, with the kind of the end life of their product. Um, and I don't want to like do 
product placement on your podcast. I feel like that's a conflict of interest. But pe- people, again, people can Google this. Um, and th- there, there's, uh, again, I, I, we've talked a lot about vetted information versus misinformation. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, but there are clearly some companies that have made this a core part of their um, business model. Um, there are some easy things, though, where like um, people use w- wipes, like adult wipes, um, I think most dermatologists don't think these should exist. And I, I don't know if anyone is nodding or not, but um, it's, there's a, a, a lot of allergic contactants on them that can irritate the skin and cause rashes. But then also these disposable, basically like plastic containing wipes. Um, I mean, again, I, I don't want to say like you hear about the wildfires and then we hear about the fatbergs, but like this makes the news, right? Like this, this is a fatberg, like that you can't forget what a fatberg is. So, um, you know, these, these quote disposable wipes, people just flush these things, but where do they go? Well, we're not very good at capturing waste and recycling waste. And it's, it's more of reduce, reuse, recycle, but it's like, don't, don't use in the first place. And so, but then that goes like, what should you use? Well, toilet paper, well, should there be bamboo toilet paper and what's the sustainable, like it's too much for an individual consumer to know, but that the adult wipes is a pretty easy one to point to. Also, like cosmetics and topical things that have microplastics and beads in them. I, I don't know that there's any reason to do that. And those are terrible because those immediately can't be captured, can't be recycled, enter all systems to the point that we each now consume one credit card worth of plastic per week. Um, and we don't know the health implications of that. So like maybe you, you know, excrete most of that, but maybe you absorb some of that. And we can find plastic particles in like placenta. We can find plastic particles basically in the bottom of the Mariana Trench and at the top of Mount Everest. And so like, why do you need plastic beads in your like hand gel or your cosmetic or your micro beady, whatever? There's not like a reason for that. So there's some like obvious low hanging fruit, but again, there should be regulation around that. That shouldn't be something that people have to feel obligated to educate and do on their own. But um, I'd love Rachel's thoughts. I, I agree. Yes. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that the annual GDP of the global cosmetic industry is equivalent to the annual GDP of Norway. Uh, obviously, we've got COP26 coming up, which the UK is hosting later this year. And so countries are being held to account, but who's holding the cosmetic industry to account? I think it, um, my understanding is also that uh, in the EU, we've had regulation to ban plastic beads in cosmetics. And sometimes, um, much as we don't like regulation, I, I think in some areas it is necessary, um, like you say, with these um, these products which should should simply be avoided and particularly particularly with plastic beads because my understanding is that the the idea is that they're meant to sort of be exfoliating but you know there's natural ingredients that will do that job you know some some ah you use that phrase matt (laughs) that term natural so define it sorry <laughs> i was just waiting for someone to do that yes that's true oh god i've walked into my i've walked into my own trap because we've talked about this before natural doesn't always mean good it could have been clean it could have been natural could be sustainable these marketing terms that's that's terrible i shouldn't have done that but you're, yeah of course natural doesn't necessarily mean good but you can use alternative ingredients is perhaps what i should have said well you're absolutely right i think there is no definition i was teasing sorry around the term natural and i think this leads to a huge amount of confusion in the cosmetic industry by consumers because it's used as a marketing term, yet it's not defined. And so regulation around this area would be really helpful as well. Um, because what we're seeing as dermatologists is that people are wanting to be more environmentally aware. They're trying to switch to uh, products that are better for the environment. 
these products are being marketed as best for the environment when there's absolutely no evidence that there is and potentially they're more harmful for the skin. So we're seeing an increase in the use of essential oils, for example, being termed as natural. There's sort of oak moss and, um, well, limonene is pretty much in everything. I gather it's, it's a, by, a very cheap byproduct of the, uh, the fruit juice industry <laughs> and um, it's almost impossible to find a cosmetic ingredient without limonene in these days. And uh, Limonene, is that a fragrance? It's, sorry, yes, it's a it's common component of, well, of a lot of essential oils, actually. We're seeing um, an increasing allergy to that in our contact and um, dermatitis patients, so both irritant and cutaneous allergy to some of these ingredients. The problem is, is that the perception from a lot of consumers is natural is better <laughs> for the environment and their skin. But as dermatologists, we know that obviously we're big, compa- uh, big well, gen- well, this is a bit of a problem. I do feel conflicted here because we're big fans of petroleum <laughs> jelly in, uh, the <laughs> in dermatology. It's one of our mainstays for our patients with really inflamed skin. However, it is uh, derived from petrochemicals and obviously there is understandable um, enthusiasm amongst consumers to switch from from products which are derived from petrochemical chemicals um, to um, plant-based, for example, products. So um, moving to sort of castor oil, coconut oil, palm oil. So it's going to have to come up at some point, so we might as well bring it into the conversation in a controlled fashion. Um, however... Um, yeah, this is very tricky. You're I right. Mean, no. My understanding is that actually the cosmetic industry isn't as big a consumer as palm oil as, uh, for example, the food industry. And there's huge controversy a- amongst um, palm oil. Whereas actually, interestingly, the carbon footprint of um, palm oil is actually lower than the majority of plant-based oils because of the high yield that... Um, that you get from palm oil and um, and so it, it, it's really complicated unfortunately th- there is quite a lot of misinformation in this area so it's led to to a lot of consumers trying to to avoid products with palm oil in but what they don't realize is that actually a lot of the ingredients which they might not realize are actually derived from palm oil are still in the product because um, we still need to get ingredients from somewhere and they either going to come from petrochemicals plants animals minerals you know they don't just they're not just magically derived from somewhere so it's a question of educating consumers about um, where the ingredients in their products have come from and um, regulation to help make sure that these claims are actually appropriate and defined whereas at the moment they're not at all because it's really difficult for consumers to make informed decisions if they're not presented with clear information. And, you know, who, who can possibly track global supply chains when they're trying to buy some shampoo? You know, it's it's not reasonable um, yeah. to expect that. So so I, I do think it's good that people try and make conscious decisions, even if they're not always making perfect decisions, because I guess that shows to industry what's important to them. Yeah, it's brilliant that moves are being made. I know that Matt touched on it a little bit earlier. For the individual, the consumer who, who might be listening to the podcast, um, so if they're environmentally conscious, which I hope most people are these days, how would consumers go about lessening any impact they might have on the planet? Do you think this requires industry or even government intervention for them to truly make a difference? No, and I think um, that there is appetite for this. I mean, the problem is, is that the main message that we want to get across to consumers is use less. Um, if we go through everyone's bathroom cabinets, I'm sure we'll find a whole host of plastic bottles which um, may never even be used. And so understandably, 
that's never going to be a message that any retail industry is ever going to be comfortable with because at the end of the day, they're a business and they sell their products. That's how they make money. So therefore, I think it's it's really up to those of us who work closely with the cosmetic industry and, and hopefully are regarded as informed by consumers to really get this message across that the majority of your bathroom cabinet contents you probably don't need. Um, and and we do know that so it, it is a case of use less avoid anything cont- containing microbeads and wet wipes and then reuse when you can so example using a flannel instead of a, a wet wipe using washable eye makeup remover pads rather than single use cotton remover pads these you know now that we're washing our face masks every week as well these are not difficult <laughs> decisions to make um you know switching to for example soap bars from from liquid soap switching to shampoo bars and conditioner bars because the majority of these products are actually water uh, so you're not only paying for 95% water for example in conditioner but you're also contributing to the supply chain of having transported that water from its original destination to your bathroom so there's lots of potential for reducing your carbon footprint of your skincare in a more meaningful way than the greenwashing that is presented by the cosmetic industry at present. You know, if you think about food, you know, imagine you went into the supermarket or market or whatever, um, and you were shopping for food, and there was no labels on anything, you know, like you might have no idea how many calories or, you know, carbohydrates versus fat versus protein. Um, But imagine there was a label on the food that said, you know, what the carbon footprint of it was to ship it there, like, would you take into consideration, not just the nutritional value or the cost, but also the global impact of that. And so it's not that far fetched to imagine that happening for all sorts of products where imagine you went into the beauty or cosmeceutical aisle and you were looking for different you know moisturizers or um, sunscreens or whatever it is and then you could see you know this is sustainably farmed this is local this is not plastic wrapped this is this is the impact or the life cycle of this product because you don't have access to that information really handcuffs you in terms of making an individual choice that, that's not to say throw up your hands and, and don't make a choice um, but, you know, the the issues that we, we struggle with is also what's the major issue right now? So plastic waste is a big issue and will be a big issue. And the sooner we do something about it, the much better it will be long term. Um, but uh, CO2 and emissions is a critical issue. And so um, and we have the solutions for that critical issue where, you know, I don't want to say, well, you can ignore plastic and focus on, you know, CO2 emissions. That is not really what I would say. But I think um, the the question really becomes, where should you focus your efforts? So if you're going to spend, you, let's say you have 10% of your time to investigate products or whatever, and you spend it all on getting um, a, a moisturizer that's 1% less polluting versus, and then you take a flight to some tropical location so that you can wear that moisturizer, really you're, you're you You've net probably done more environmental harm with that air travel um, than you had with your investigation into the sustainability of that that topical. And that's not to say no one should travel or go on holiday. Um, but there are, you know, one of the other things with the pandemic, I think it's shown us the beauty of exploring locally and that there are a lot of options kind of around where you are and um, sort of th- there are ways to take, uh, I mean, certainly in Europe, you know, rail as opposed to air. And, uh, you know, if you invest in uh, electric vehicle and you charge it from a power source that is renewable energy, 
maybe you can make kind of shorter trips or travel with much less um, pollution than if you air travel. And so if you're going to pick where to like get the most bang for your buck, it really is one of these things where sort of air travel reductions is, is a big way to really reduce your um, negative climate impact overall as, as an individual. I mean, as Misha said, it's, it's looking at the bigger picture. I think there's been an element of this with sunscreen as well, because everyone's focusing on the ingredients of sunscreen, which whether a physical sunscreen or a chemical sunscreen is better for the environment, when actually, as I think was mentioned at the RSM meeting, a hat you know, I, is better. Think how many times you can reuse it. Um, it's not getting washed into the sea. So it's it's really, it's looking at the bigger picture. It's thinking if you're trying to reduce personal risk of skin cancers, um, then using, as we discuss so often in our you know, BAD uh, skin cancer prevention meetings, it's it's really trying to get move the focus to you know staying in the shade, wearing clothing, wearing a hat, wearing sunglasses, and sunscreen is a last resort. And then you can worry about the ingredients of your sunscreen, um, which is a really grey area again. But I think people would be surprised by how little sunscreen that dermatologists actually use because we use those other measures to prevent ourselves getting skin cancer. Um, so actually using those measures and then buying a very small tube of sunscreen to just cover the nose and those bits of the, um, the skin that are exposed when you have to be out in direct sunlight is, is far better than buying a, a very large bottle of uh, potentially you know marketed as uh, coral reef safe sunscreen, which then you're going to then coat your body in and uh, go and wash off in the sea. So it, it is looking at the bigger picture. Uh, it really is. And we, we know through some of the work that's been done by the Sustainable Development Unit, which I think um, is part of the NHS, we're very fortunate again to have that, did show that um, that essentially patient and staff transport makes up a huge proportion of greenhouse gas emissions for healthcare. And that, as Misha was saying, you know, one of the disruption effects of the pandemic has meant that we're all far more comfortable now with technology moving towards more teledermatology and care in the community, having more virtual conferences, which is re- reducing staff travel. Because um, I mean, when I mentioned previously, we look you know, I felt so guilty about um, putting every single disposable um, pack of instruments um, in, into effectively into the shops, which then went to the incinerator. Um, but when we looked at the potential carbon emissions um, difference, if we were to switch reusable packs in one whole year in our department, uh, then we'd only save um, the equivalent carbon emissions of flying to Scotland and back. That was really a lesson to me that, as Misha was saying, if I just don't go to the AAD, <laughs> then, you know, that, that that's just, just comparing the impact. You know, it's just looking at the bigger picture and think, how can I, or how can we as a specialty, um, how can we as an organisation, how can I as an individual reduce my carbon footprint? Because as Misha was saying, plastic is a distraction. It's very visual and we all very much focused on recycling at the moment. That's great, but it's missing the bigger picture of how can we really focus on reducing carbon emissions, which is beyond urgent, it's an emergency, but we just haven't probably realised it yet. We've talked about it already, but I just maybe wanted to leave listeners who are in the medical professions. Um, maybe you could just give Rachel your your sort of tips on if they if this is a topic they're interested in, what can they do to get involved? Uh, you know, how have you got involved? Any top tips that you can give, really? I think it's um, it's finding like-minded people and um, creating a network and doing that in um, within your your work organisations, your professional organisations. We're all, particularly as clinicians, we're all members of many august bodies. <laughs> and um, 
And so often it is just standing up in a meeting and saying, hi, um, do we do we have a, a climate change um, pro- policy? What are we doing as an organisation to try and reduce our carbon footprint? It's fantastic now that it's um, it feels there's real momentum in healthcare. So it, it feels like you're pushing against an open door a lot of the time. It's, it is challenging as an individual and it can be quite exhausting, <laughs> in all honesty, um, because once you start making almost all decisions in your life based on the potential carbon footprint you're producing from that decision, it can feel quite overwhelming. And it's hard. It, you know, They always say that humans aren't great at behaviour change and um, life is um, pretty, you know, the, the greenhouse gases have given humans a pretty easy ride over the <laughs> the last uh, few decades um but we we can't continue it's just n- not an option uh, we have to change and um and there are ways of doing this more easily the, the sooner we do it the better you know we don't we can't continue as we are i mean i think just um i think one of the more shocking facts for me is that even if we stay within the paris agreement like we accept that the, the globe will warm by four degrees um so closer to home there will be no glaciers in the alps i think that um so because I, I think i i thought oh it, it's being sorted i think it was my you know when you, you go through the kind of denial phase and then you think oh no don't worry it's okay world leaders are on this and then you think oh no they're not we, we really need to show that um we we are ready for change we want change and we want it now we're not prepared to wait another 20 years it, this needs to happen now and um, we need to show that to our organisations, our governments. And we need, to, we need to buy smart. We need to, as consumers, use our money to support those organisations that um, are reducing their carbon footprint and buy less. It's, it's more of a political will and a societal agreement. And I think climate um, change experts talk a lot about the importance of communication. So even just talking about it with others, I think you'd be surprised how many people care about this, but feel powerless or don't know what to do. And so even if you just, like you said, raise your hand at a meeting or ask a question or, um, you know, when if you're involved in a meeting planning and they say, well, we're going to have this meeting here and you can say, well, can it be virtual or can it be hybrid or are we going to have a hybrid option? Um, or just there's probably going to be people who feel cooped up from the past 18 months. And again, you know, in the UK and US, we're very fortunate to have literally miraculous, thanks to science vaccines, which um, are allowing some, you know, potential return towards pre-pandemic normalcy for for many in in our fortunate countries. Uh, And people might want to travel or go on holiday. And that's understandable and okay. No one's saying you should never take a trip, but maybe you should look at, can I reduce one air flight into one drive or train, you know, per year? Um, Even that, again, makes a meaningful impact. But um, I think most people um, think about their children a lot. And I think most people try to make things better for their children, you know, devote a lot of time and energy to making life better. I think every parent wants their children's lives to be better than their lives. And I think everyone should realize that the science around global warming is, is it's, it's settled science. It really, there, there's five sigma certainty, 99.97% agreement, all published papers. One out of 3,000 of the last published papers argues against it is funded by fossil fuel industry. There, there is, again, as people say, there's more evidence for um, human-induced climate change than there is for gravity. And um, you know, there, there's some point when we, we can stop discussing whether it's true. It, it's true. It's not, do you believe in climate change? It's, do you actually understand the science is the correct question. Um, but we also know what we have to do to, to mitigate it. And, and the, the issue that we, I think, struggle with is people talk about, you know, 2100 scenarios or, you know, if, if people don't adhere to 
Paris Accords and we hit three or four degrees C warming. What does that mean? And that can feel very abstract and far off, but the, we're, we're seeing those impacts today and we're not seeing those impacts today in far off places like sub-Saharan Africa or, or, or the Middle East. We're seeing those in, in the US where technically New York City, I think, can be classified as a subtropical zone now. I mean, we have you know tropical mosquitoes in continental US causing disease. And the extreme weather events, there's there's more hurricanes that are more severe due to ocean warming and, and warmer air. And so these impacts are here now, but we know that the choices we make now have exponential impacts on the world that our children and our children's children will live in for 1,000 to 10,000 years. I mean, we have an incredible responsibility, but incredible opportunity to make things better. And we just, we can. It's, it's, not, it's not even like that hard. We just all have to agree and do it. Absolutely. And I think lots of people have organisations they're part of, whether it's a, a football club they support or a an association they're a member of, like the BAD. Um, I'm sure that people have sort of local councils or their equivalent in other countries. And I'm sure a decision made by a local councillor that affects thousands of people in a small community will do more to impact climate change and whether that's plastic use or whether it's CO2 emissions then as an individual, I can achieve by changing the cosmetics I buy. So I think, you know, be amazed at how receptive people can be as well. I know at the BAD, our members have been quite vocal about sustainability, particularly in recent years. And we've been very willing to accommodate that and very keen to accommodate that because it's, it's a positive message for us. But there's a lot of, you know, in, in organisations, there's always lots of polls on what you can do. And so, you, you know, it's helpful to have voices who are saying, no, this is important to us. So I do think, you know, speaking up and saying, whether it's your football club or your your sports team of any sort, you know, whatever it may be, is ask the question of okay, what are you doing to be more sustainable and how can we help that happen? Yeah, I think it's this time for people to speak up. Uh, there's no more waiting about. Absolutely. Thank you so much to uh, Dr. Misha Rosenbach and also Dr. Rachel Abbott. Thanks guys for coming in and speaking to us. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. And thank you, Rachel, for teaching me so much. And it's a great discussion. 